The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is a privilege to turn again to God's Word this morning, and we're turning to the Gospel of Luke. And our goal as we approach Christmas is to spend the next four Sundays looking at the events leading up to and just after the birth of Jesus. Now, we're in a time that the church traditionally is called Advent, a time that has been spent looking uh, at setting our focus on waiting and preparing for the coming of God and for the fulfilling of His promises. I think as uh, a child, Christmas time has to capture the essence of waiting more than about any other time. My family usually gets uh, our Christmas tree the weekend after Thanksgiving, so we put our Christmas tree up last Saturday. And because we're not going to see my parents over Christmas, they sent their presents with us over Thanksgiving, so our presents from them are now around the tree. And my three year old keeps asking, Is today the day we're opening our presents? Is it tomorrow? But then she doesn't really have a concept beyond tomorrow of time, so she just keeps asking those questions and she kind of restacks them, you know, shakes, you know, puts them in different places around the tree. Or earlier this week, she actually woke up sobbing in the night and said, someone stole my presents, which I think must be a three-year-old uh, anxiety dream uh, if there is such a thing. But for those of us uh, who are older, perhaps, maybe Christmas is defined more by busyness than by waiting. We've been through enough years and enough Christmases that the sense of waiting and anticipation has been replaced with just the rhythms of the years, which seem to go faster every year. Maybe if Christmas isn't the thing we're waiting for, though, there are certainly other things in life that we know what it means to wait for. Maybe we're waiting for a break from work, a a vacation that we're longing for. Maybe as parents, we're waiting for our kids to outgrow diapers and three-year-old temper tantrums. Maybe we're waiting for retirement. Maybe we're waiting for that time over the holidays when all of our kids and grandkids will be together. All of these things are things we wait for, and and they give us a tiny reflection that they certainly cannot capture what it meant for God's people to wait and wait for the fulfilling of God's promised salvation. And when we step into Luke chapter 1, if we could remember the context of this chapter We remember that God's people have waited for centuries. Israel has waited through oppression, persecution, and wickedness even within the people of God so that Elijah would despair that there was even a single righteous person left in Israel. Israel's waited through defeat, capture, and exile to foreign cities. They've waited through a remnant returning to Jerusalem, but But the return did not yield the glory or fulfillment that they longed for. And now, when we arrive in Luke chapter 1, they have waited through 400 years of silence. It's roughly 15 generations that have come and gone without a word from God. The last Israel heard, the prophet Malachi had said, Behold, 
I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. And but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Those are great and precious promises, but it's been 400 years. And so little did Israel know that here in the days of Herod, king of Judea, when the daily offering was being made, that the first rays of this promised sunrise were about to break into their lives. But that's what we get in Luke chapter 1. Would you join me? We'll read verses 5 through 25 and then skip ahead to John the Baptist being born in verse 57. Hear God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. If you would turn the page over and begin then in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. 
And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us this story of the first act of your great plan of salvation unfolding. I pray that your spirit would encourage and strengthen our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this first episode in the unfolding story of the coming of God's Savior, the main point of this text is that God is on the move. After 400 years of silence and waiting, the first signs of hope break unexpectedly into the daily routine of Israel's life. And they announce this key point that God has not forgotten His people, but is going to now act to fulfill His promises. As we follow this story and examine these first signs of hope, I want us to see first God's hope announced, then Zechariah's faith tested, and then the people's joy and wonder when God begins to work. So first, look at verses 5 through 17 as we see God's hope announced. You know, any good storyteller or movie director will begin relating their story by setting some background or context for what's about to happen. And Luke does the same thing here in verse 5. God is about to bring about the the pinnacle moment of all of history, the, the cosmic climax of His purposes. But He's going to start in the lives of two normal, godly, suffering people. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Both were righteous before God, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, at this time, there would have been thousands of priests, uh, descendants uh, of the Levitical line living in Judea, and these thousands of priests were divided into 24 divisions. We're told that Zechariah was in the division of Abijah. There would have been hundreds of priests in each division, and each division had two one-week periods of time in the year when it was their task to minister in the temple. And so here it is, Zechariah's uh, um, uh, division is serving in the temple, and each day for that week, they would choose by lot the priests that would perform the most significant tasks. And the most significant of those tasks on a daily basis would have been the uh, offering of the incense before the Lord. In fact, we're told uh, from documents from the air that it was such an honor to be the one to offer the sacrifice that no priest was allowed to be chosen more than once in his life to perform this duty. And so when Zechariah is chosen by lot, it is in a sense the high point or the most privileged moment of his priestly service before the Lord. And so we can imagine putting ourselves in Zechariah's position as he begins in the crowds of faithful Israelites or in the court outside praying And Zechariah steps into the holy place, into the temple, and he would walk forward to the altar of incense, and in front of him would have been the huge curtain 
that blocked off the Holy of Holies that could only be entered once a year with the cherubim printed on it would have been in front of him. On one side, the table of showbread. On the other, the golden candlesticks. And Zechariah, as the people are, prepare, are praying, prepares to offer incense before the presence of God, as happened every single day that some priest would do this. That God breaks into history and there stands the angel Gabriel to make the first announcement of hope that is about to arrive. And there's a couple things specifically about Gabriel's announcement that should immediately communicate that God is about to bring about the great day of salvation. The first is the very circumstances of John's conception. An angel shows up to a barren woman to announce a miraculous birth. God, if you think through your Old Testament history, has a pattern of signaling to his people that he's about to do something significant to save them by announcing a miraculous birth. You think first of Abraham and Sarah. God had made his promise to them that through their seed would come the blessing of the nations. The problem, of course, is that Abraham and Sarah have no seed, no offspring, no child, and they're becoming advanced in years. But then, with this promise of God hinging on Abraham and Sarah having a child, God shows up. The angel of the Lord comes and announces to old barren Abraham and Sarah the promise of a miraculous birth. At this time next year, you shall have a son. Fast forward a few hundred years to the time of the judges when God's people have been oppressed again and again, and now they have been under the yoke of the Philistines for 40 years, and an angel shows up to the wife of Manoah, a barren woman with no child, and promises a miraculous birth. The cycle of judges spins further into sinful chaos as everyone does what is right in his own eyes. When a barren woman, Hannah, pleads in prayer to the Lord, and the Lord miraculously opens her womb and gives her a son, Samuel, who will judge God's people and be the one to anoint and establish David as the king after God's own heart through whom the promised Savior will come. And so without knowing anything else at all, the reader of Scripture should think, aha, a miraculous birth is announced to old, barren parents by an angel. God must be up to something important in the lives of His people. But then the angel's specific words about John tell us that his birth is going to kick off something related to the great day of salvation. Because the angel uses the exact words that God gave to the prophet Malachi to foretell the coming day of God's salvation. We read these promises at the beginning of the sermon here, but to remind us, Malachi had promised a coming messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. Elijah, who would come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Well, look at verse 17, if you have your Bibles open. Verse 17 You see the words that Gabriel uses to describe John. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. After 400 years, God gives his people the first unmistakable signs of hope signaling that the day of salvation is about to begin in the pages of history. This is the announcement of God's hope. Now, before I leave this announcement of hope, I want to draw your attention to one small detail 
that I think gives us a big encouragement to our hearts this morning. Would you notice the wonderful mercy and the sovereign kindness of our God that he would bring about these cosmic history-shaping events in a way that answers the personal prayers of two suffering people? Do you notice that the angel doesn't begin his announcement by declaring 2,000 years of God's promises are about to happen? No, he begins by saying, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard and your wife will have a baby. Two faithful people have endured a long grief, praying to the Lord that they might have a child. And as one commentator reminds us, sometimes the Lord answers prayer quickly. Sometimes he answers by saying no because he has a better plan. And sometimes, as here, he answers with a kind and gracious yes in his time, though we may have begun to give up hope. And here the, the, the Lord shows his kindness to answer their prayers. And I want us to be encouraged by the character of our God who answers prayer in this way. But I think the other encouragement to us is this. The message of Christ's salvation is not just this grand, eternal offer of salvation that is such a big deal that it overrides our daily concerns and our personal griefs. It's not that at all. Rather, God's work of salvation in Christ is also the way in which He will kindly and graciously answer our prayers and wipe away the griefs and the reproaches and the sufferings of our lives. For all of the marks of the curse of sin that are the griefs of our life, the sufferings of our lives, will be taken away by the work of Christ, our Savior. It's true, some of them will be taken away quickly, others in different ways that we have asked, some much later in God's good time. But the showing up of God's Savior is a guarantee that all of the marks of the curse of sin will be wiped away. Because the promise of God is a guarantee that every tear will be wiped away, all the sickness and suffering will end, and every yearning of our hearts will find its full satisfaction in the salvation God has come to bring in Christ. And so here we have a reminder that the announcement of salvation is not one in which God says, salvation is such a big deal, your small griefs don't matter. It is exactly the opposite. That God shows up and sends the Savior of the world in such a way that He sovereignly and kindly and graciously brings joy and hope to every hurting heart. And God demonstrates that here in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Well, let's move on now to notice secondly in this passage the testing of Zechariah's faith. When the angel finishes speaking, Zechariah doubts and questions how this announcement can really be true. Of course, Zechariah is neither the first nor the last to doubt God's word or doubt God's promises. You may remember that Sarah laughed when the angel of the Lord told her she would have a baby. Manoah seems to doubt his wife when she tells him an angel has promised them a child. And of course, later in the Gospels, Thomas is going to doubt that Christ is really risen from the dead. And perhaps we have some sympathy on these men and women because we too struggle to believe the word and the promises of God at times in our lives because of the experiences that we go through. But the angel gives proof for his words by declaring, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. 
And here we have a double assurance that God's words will come through true. First, Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God Himself in the throne room of our heavenly Savior, and He has sent me to speak to you this news. And so we're assured of the truth of these words by a messenger coming from God Himself. But even Gabriel's appearance should be a second clue, a second reason to trust that God is about to act. See, the last time Gabriel showed up in Scripture, he showed up to a prophet, Daniel, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when David was praying, or excuse me, Daniel was praying to the Lord. And Gabriel gave him the prophecy of 70 weeks, which foretold a time when God would show up to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring about everlasting righteousness. And so when Gabriel shows up again, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when the people are praying, he announces the fulfillment of the prophecy he gave to Daniel. And Zechariah should have seen this evidence that salvation and the great day of the Lord are at hand. But instead, Zechariah, who has lived and grieved through the daily rhythms of Judean life, cannot believe that a miracle would override his daily expectations and experience. And so Zechariah's doubt is met with Gabriel's defense, but also the consequence that he will not be able to speak until the day that God's word comes true. And I want us to hear both a challenge, but also a comfort from this testing of Zechariah this morning. On the one hand, Zechariah's example challenges us to trust God's word more than our own logic or experience. In some ways, this is a flesh and blood story that demonstrates the truth of Proverbs 3.5. Proverbs 3.5 is a verse many of us know. Trust in the Lord with all our heart and do not lean on our own understanding. And this is so often our struggle too. We doubt God's word because we're leaning on our own understanding and expectations and experience and we can't understand how God's word can really be true. And we see it in so many ways in our lives. How could God really want me to continue unhappy in a marriage like this? How can God love me when life has crushed me in a series of griefs? How can God be a loving God and be against gay marriage with all that the people I know seem to be suffering? If I obey God and turn from everything sinful, I'm going to lose my best friend or my job is in jeopardy. We could continue to spell out all of the situations in our lives where we're tempted to doubt God's word and God's promises because they don't seem to make sense to us and our wisdom. And this story of Zechariah is summoning us to hold fast to the word and to the promises of God. They are always true. They are always reliable. And they are always more true and reliable than our own feelings or experiences. But this story also offers an immense comfort. Would you and I as sinners who often struggle with belief in God's word, hear the comfort of this passage? Here's Zechariah. Yes, though a righteous man, he clearly sins in unbelief in the very presence of God with an angel from God in front of him in the temple. And if you think back to the Old Testament, you can think of examples of men who sinned in the presence of God in his temple who were struck dead immediately for their sin before the Lord. But Zechariah is not struck dead. Instead, God graciously uses this 
to draw Zechariah into new realms of trust and joy. Would you just take a minute to notice the difference between Zechariah in verses 12 through 18 and Zechariah in verses 63 and 64? When we first meet Zechariah in 12 through 18, he's troubled, he's afraid, and he doubts the word of the Lord. But in verses 63 and 64, Zechariah goes against the will and expectations of all of his relatives and friends who want to call the baby Zechariah and declares firmly, no, his name is John. And if I could maybe draw out the significance of those words, you'll note that Elizabeth, when asked about the baby's name, says he shall be called John or he will be called John. And that's typically the way we would expect a naming to be announced. We will call him this. But that's not what Zechariah says. He says his name is John. His name already is John because Zechariah is saying, I'm not the one naming this baby. God has already named it and announced it by an angel Gabriel who showed up. And so Zechariah is showing his firmness of his trust and obedience in the Lord by saying his name already is John. God has declared it. I believe God has declared it. And that is what it will be. And then when Zechariah's speech returns, his first act is to praise and to bless the name of God. And so here we see God's mercy and his kindness. Taking a man who was troubled and afraid and doubted in unbelief, and used his fatherly discipline to instead bring him to a place of trust, obedience, and joy. And this is what God promises to do for all his children, who, yes, we struggle with the brokenness of our remaining sin, but God graciously comes to us and uses his discipline, his sovereign fatherly discipline, to graciously bring us into realms of trust and joy that we did not know before. We find encouragement and comfort from the character of our God in the story of Zechariah. Well, finally, and most briefly, notice that when God shows up and sets his salvation in motion, his work leaves everyone who encounters it in joy and awe. This starts with Gabriel's prophecy in verse 14. In verse 14, Gabriel announces that you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Of course, we expect this baby will be a joy to his parents who have hoped for him for so long. But this baby is also going to be great before the Lord so that many in Israel will rejoice at his birth because this baby is going to be the beginning of God's plans of salvation. He will announce the coming of the fulfillment that Israel has been waiting for. One commentator notes that the actual words chosen and the language used in this verse suggests the specific kind of joy that's usually associated with God's great acts of salvation. As he puts it, joy comes because John's ministry signals the Lord's decisive work for the salvation of his people. Joy comes because God is on the move and the long-awaited promises are about to be fulfilled. Well, joy and awe are even more the dominant emotions of verses 57 through 66. Elizabeth here gives birth to this child. A barren old woman bears a son. And what do the neighbors and relatives do when they hear that the Lord has done this? They say the Lord has shown great mercy. What else could it be? 
an old and barren woman gives birth to a son. Only the great mercy of the Lord could bring that about. And they rejoice with her. Zechariah, the silent and mute one, declares the baby's name is John and he immediately regains his ability to speak and breaks forth in joy and blessing and praise of God. And then the passage ends, verses 65 and 66, by showing us that fear came upon all of the people. Not the fear of trembling in fright, but a fear of realizing that this could only happen when a power far beyond them, when the power of heaven itself had come to act and break into their lives. And so they say, what then will this child be? For the Lord was with him. Joy and wonder. Awe and rejoicing. These are the responses God's people have always had when God shows up and acts in His people's lives to bring about salvation. And this story is a marvelous story. But remember that this story is just chapter 1. This story is not all about John. It's the prelude. It's just the first signs of the hope that God's on the move and that movement of God, that work of God, is going to come to a climax in the next chapter. If we were looking at this in this terms of stories, we would say that this chapter ends on a cliffhanger. What then will this child be? That's the question. And we're going to get the answer Not just when John grows up, but when another baby is born. It's a prelude to the real miracle that the baby born in a manger turns out to be the climactic act of God as He breaks into history and sends His own Son to live among us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And my hope is that in these next few weeks leading up to Christmas, that these weeks would not get swallowed in the busyness and the anticipation and the routine and the rhythms that are the Christmas music and Christmas routines and shopping and all of that, but that these next few weeks are an opportunity for us to be renewed in the same response of wonder and joy, to be refreshed as we hear this story again, and to respond in the same way as the people around Elizabeth and around Zechariah, wonder and awe at what God has done. As I was pondering this, the words of a recent Christmas song by Laura Story came to mind. Put out the light, put up the tree, same old stocking, same routine, busy sidewalks, crowded stores, somehow I'd forgotten what it's all for. The Word made flesh for me, Born a child and a king. God, I want to feel the wonder of heaven touching earth. Here a thousand angels sing. Our God is here. Luke 1. As Judean life was going about its daily routine, God set in motion the greatest events in history, sending its first signs, the first signs of hope to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And just as it set off joy and wonder to all who saw those first signs then, I pray that God would invite us into the same wonder and joy as we hear again what God is doing, not just through the life of John, but more importantly, through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this moment when Your hope first begins to break on God's people. 
And I pray that our hearts would not be jaded or calloused by the routine of years after years, but would rather remember again the significance of what we are celebrating. The beginning of the hope of all the years, the joy of God's promises fulfilled, the offer of salvation to sinners such as us. I pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.